You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. And we are today finishing the Old Testament portion of our reading plan. So we just finished week 30. We'll be heading into week 31, and so if you don't have one of those, please grab a copy on your way out. It's at the little coffee area. So over halfway done with the year, now we're done with the Old Testament, continue to do our memory verses, and so the memory verse for this week, Psalm 51, 17, and uh, one of my guys I was talking to last week, he was like, every translation has this differently. I'm like, well, that's why we'll just do one translation, and you get to pick that, and some translations hit verses better than others. I think the CSB does a pretty good job here on Psalm 51, 17, and making it clear. It says this, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You do not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. And that makes a lot of sense. Sometimes like a broken and humbled heart, you do not despise, right? Like we, we can understand that, but you invert the words and you're like, why? Why, why put them in a different order when we understand subject verb pretty well? Um, but yeah, that is ours. And so we're going to start next week into the New Testament. And the cool thing will be, well, cool to me, maybe not cool to you, but we'll continue to think it's cool. Uh, will be that we can now, as we're getting into the stuff about Jesus and his life and his ministry, now we can reach backward, right? We can kind of go, look, we talked about this already. So, right, the Old Testament is kind of reaching forward to the coming of Jesus, and not just that, but also beyond that to uh, the new heaven, new earth, when God makes everything new. The New Testament is pointing backwards to the birth and uh, life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus and pointing forward to the time when he makes all things new. And so one's kind of going skipping this way and one's going this way. Uh, but the cross and the work of Jesus is central to all that we are reading about. So it'll be fun as we go through it to kind of be able to now go backwards. And we'll start that even next week with John 1 when it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, which, you know, teaser alert, that's your memory verse for next week or this coming week. Um, but when we did the first sermon of this year, Genesis chapter 1, we looked at John chapter 1. So then 31 Sundays later, we get to now go look at John chapter 1 and go back to Genesis 1. So we'll get to see the way some of these pieces fit together. But as we do it this morning, we're starting in the book of Malachi. book of Malachi is not... Did you just laugh there? Willie, did you laugh about that? Malachi? Yeah, it's four chapters. Okay. All right, we'll pray for you. Yeah. Watch out. Yeah, yeah. You don't say that to father's father is in law. Yeah. Now, Malachi is a book of oracles, and it's only four chapters, but what you're going to find is the timing is going to be, like how, how the oracles are structured is like God's bringing accusations. Israel's responding with, what do you mean that's a problem? That's essentially what's going on. God's like, hey, you're doing this. And they're like, what do you mean we're doing that? How do we do that, right? Just like a kid does. So it's the Lord having a conversation with Israel through Malachi about how they think they're better off than they are. And God's like, you're really this bad off. Let me explain why. So I'm going to start in 2.17. We're going to go through 3.6. So 2.17, the end of chapter 2, through 3.6. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying this, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he, God, delights in them. Or by asking, where's the God of justice? Meaning, like, how come you haven't brought justice on all these bad people? Chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger, 
he will prepare the way before me. This is God speaking. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire or like a fuller's soap. Just somebody does laundry, right? Just like cleaning, cleaning linens like Fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the faithless, uh, the, his wages, the widow and the faithless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now the paragraph ends, but I want to grab verse 6 because it's just a reminder of something God is re- telling his people. For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, which would be Israel, are not consumed. Okay, so 2.17 through 3.6. Pray with me as we get into this. Fathers, we've journeyed through the Old Testament this year thus far. We have seen your faithfulness time and time again. And as we end uh, this week from the book of Malachi, we would ask you to open our eyes to the goodness that is in it, to your faithfulness that is in it, and to the work that you do from this point in Malachi to 400 years later in the coming of your Son into this world that we could see him and behold him, and through this time could love him more. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I am unsure about you. There are, though, likely few of us in here who like waiting for things. I'm just guessing. Don't know you all, you know, in this detail incredibly well, but waiting is a difficult thing, right? Waiting one week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, seven weeks. I'm not going to say we're impatient. I'm just going to say waiting is hard. And often, as time goes on, you start to forget things. You start to forget what you cared about. You start to forget what was interesting. You start to go, did that really, did that really matter that much to me anymore? And this is, a, this is a really good thing in some ways. Like time is kind of God's grace as we forget because like sometimes we're really wounded by something. But if we're just like, I'm just going to give it, you know, maybe if I give it a week or two or maybe even a year, I won't feel as bad. And oftentimes, not every time, oftentimes as time has passed for like, Okay, the sting of that has dulled, and that's good, right? The hurt of that has dulled, and that's good. Like, God is healing, and God is working. There are other times we go in the opposite direction, where we should be remembering certain things, but as time goes on, we forget them. We should be living in certain ways, but as time goes on, we forget them. So anybody who's married has probably experienced this. Anybody who's been in a relationship, anybody who's watched a relationship, you probably go, there are times when your relationship with your spouse is hitting on all cylinders, and there's times when it's not, and you've maybe heard little illustrations about how like, you know, when you were dating your spouse was like the last time that you got them flowers, got her flowers. Because then you're like, got her, you know, we win. And then 70 years goes by and you're like, kind of lock that thing up, we're good now. And so we forget, right? Sometimes we forget how to pursue. We forget how to love. We forget how to follow. And the same thing happens in our relationship with God. And what we're going to see from the book of Malachi is this. Now, placing Malachi, dating it precisely, is kind of difficult. 
Um, but, but many would think that Malachi is showing up sometime after Nehemiah has done his work in his building, not hundreds and hundreds of years, but sometime decades after that work has been done. And so they're starting to try and live their life faithfully in the land again, but they don't. If you are with us in our reading plan, then you've read Malachi this week and you saw like God's like, hey, priests, don't offer me blind animals. You're supposed to do unblemished animals, so don't offer me things that have blemishes. Try to do that for anybody else in your life. Give them your worst and see how they respond. How much more will I respond this way? He gets mad at people for not giving and being generous. He's like, why are you withholding from providing for the temple, providing for the needs? Like, why are you withholding from this? And so there's times when God will bring accusation Israel responds like, I don't know what you mean. What do you mean you, know, we, you, know, you love us? Or what do you mean that you do this? And so the book of Malachi is kind of this back and forth through Malachi between God and Israel where God is bringing accusations. They're responding going, it's not really that bad. You know, we're just kind of being faithful, right? And God goes, no, let me explain. And it ends with God going, I'm going to, just like every other time we read in the Old Testament, God going, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix this. That happens where we are today in 2.17 through 3, 5, and 6. It happens at the end of chapter 4 when he goes, I'm going to send Elijah before you. And so we're going to see that as we go. Alan Ross is a great Old Testament uh, scholar, and he did some really good work in this passage. So I got to uh, lean on Alan Ross some for that. People who know Hebrew much better than I do. So I'm like, hey, you just, <laughs> you tell me what's going on because I, I'm not sitting there like, in my, I know you guys probably think all day I'm just studying Hebrew, but I'm not. Uh, so I use smarter people than I am to learn the things that I could not learn as quickly as they could learn it because they've dedicated decades of their life to it. So as we go through this, we're going to see what God has done, what God is doing, and even with us, when we become impatient with God, he actually is faithful. And we're going to start right there in verse 17 with the accusation. And we see this, a wearied God. He is weary. That's a uh, using human words to explain the emotion so they can understand kind of what they're doing to him in a sense, even though God is unchanging. He's entering in, we've talked about this before, he's entering into their world, he's communicating with them in a way they can understand. You have wearied me with your words, with your speech. I'm tired of the way you're talking. But they say, how? Huh? Uh, what, do you, what do you mean we've wearied you with our words? How have we done this? And he gives two accusations. You've said two things. You've said everyone who does evil in, uh, is good in the sight of God. So you're, you're essentially speaking poorly of my character by saying that I approve of evil. And you're asking this question, where is the God of justice? Where's the God who's supposed to fix the people who are doing the wrong things? Where's God who's like, we have enemies around us and all this stuff. It's like, where's the God of justice right now? Because you clearly must love evil things. Because evil people are getting along just fine. They haven't been rebuked and they haven't been judged by you. So where have you been? So that's the attitude that they're bringing before God that God's calling them out on. Weird me with your words because you think everyone who does evil is good, that I approve of it. And you're wondering where I've been. You're wondering if I'm being just because you're not seeing me act as you thought I should act. That's a pretty common in our walks to the Lord, isn't that a pretty common way that we have to deal with it? It's like, I thought God would do this, and instead he did that. I mean, it's the same thing when Jesus comes into the world, and Israel's like, wait a minute. You're not the person we thought would be coming right now. 
And so they're expecting God to act a certain way. God is not acting the way that they thought, which is for their good. And we're going to get to that as we get into the next paragraph. It's for their good that he doesn't do the things that they want him to do. Because he's like, not even you could stand up to that. You think you're good. You're not. They've wondered where justice is. And they think that they're living rightly and everyone else needs to be condemned. And this is what I would just say about verse 17. As we see this, they've kind of settled in. A few decades have passed and they're already starting to go, oh, yeah, well, this is how life is now. And they've forgotten God's character. They're accusing him of certain ways of behaving. And they're making a statement about him that is absolutely not true, which is, you delight in evil. You must clearly like evil things because you're not changing it. Isn't that an accusation that even we bring before God today? We say it like this. If God is good, then why? If God is good, then why this? If God is loving, then why this? If God is just, then why did this happen? Some of those are honest doubts. Some of those are us trying to reconcile what we see with who God is, and we're trying to figure it out. Right? Tim Keller deals really well in his books, Making Sense of God or The Reason for God, and how do you deal with your own doubts and disappointment that you might feel with God and wrestle through what are you actually believing when you say something like that. Other times... All we're trying to do is make a statement that we are somehow superior to God and go, I know what would would be done better. If God really were like this, then he would not have done that. That's often something that those of us in this room have said, or at least maybe if, if we're afraid of saying it, we've felt. I can't understand why God would let this happen. And what are we saying about that? We're making a declaration about his character. And we better be really careful when we start saying things and making accusations against the Lord. Specifically, statements that are incredibly out of step with who he is. Remember, this is the God who, from really the time the nation began and even before, even before the time they were in the land, I mean, think about Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, back before they enter into the land of Canaan, and they're like, we need a new God. And they take all their rings, and they melt them down, and then as Aaron says, out comes this calf. Like, I don't know, but we don't want to waste a good calf, so let's just worship it. So from the very beginning, they are living disobediently. Misunderstanding what God would have. We saw a couple of these phrases in our reading plan. We talked about one recently where they're like, oh, and since the time of, and it goes back hundreds of years, the people never observed this. They never had this festival. We saw it with the Festival of Booths. Never done this thing. They never lived this way. They never done this. And so here we are again. God's people not living up to God's expectation. Pretty common theme in life, right? Like, God's people not living up to God's expectation. God doesn't change, we change. And so we have to be incredibly cautious about our perspective on God's character. Because we might be going through something and we think God is absent. We might think that God is unconcerned. We might think that God is too tolerant. We might think that God is trying, you know, like like he must have changed And one thing that we generally don't apply in those circumstances to him is patience. Perhaps God is being patient while he works out 
his plans, which are better than our plans. Because when we bring accusations against God, what are we often saying? The way that I thought the world should work is better than the way that you think the world should work. The way that I think this should happen and the feeling that I have about it is superior to you, God, and what you think should happen and what you have planned. And we mistake the words of Scripture and we go, my ways are not your ways, God. My ways are better. And we have to be incredibly careful about swapping who's who in those situations. So that's the accusation. And then this is the Lord in chapter 3 starting to go, okay, look what's going to happen here. It talks about God's messenger, and we're just going to look at 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, you're looking for me, where am I? He will come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, which is an interesting phrase, in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. So we have different people talking now. God's like, I'm going to send my messenger. He's going to come before me. He's going to come to his temple. And the Lord in you delight, or the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, he's coming. Okay. So we have different things happening here. So the first statement we have, I will send a messenger. So someone's going to come. A messenger is this one who announces. Right? An angel is a messenger. But a messenger is one who announces, so I'm going to send my messenger, and this messenger is going to prepare the way before me, which if you're familiar with Bible language, you may have heard something like that before. If you're unfamiliar, I'm going to show you. This messenger is going to prepare the way, and the Lord whom you seek, the Lord is going to show up, and he's going to be at his temple. The messenger of the covenant, which is a different, seems like a different person, right? There's a messenger in verse 1, the first part of verse 1, now there's a different messenger here. And this word is used of in whom you delight, which is language used for God, in whom you seek, in whom you delight, that kind of language. It's not just used for just some general messenger. As much as I love for you, when I walk up here on a Sunday, if you'd be like, man, Hans, in whom I delight, like, don't give me that. It's the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, he's coming. So God's going to send a messenger. This messenger's going to prepare the way, and the Lord's going to come. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight is coming. Jesus, 400 years later, think about it. So we're going, Jesus' death, uh, or his, his life and his ministry, and at the Last Supper, he's bringing a cup, okay? And he has a cup, he has bread, and he has wine. And he's instituting the new, what's it called? covenant the messenger of the covenant will come so the lord's going i'm coming there's gonna be a messenger i'm coming i'm gonna show up with the temple the messenger of the covenant is gonna come so i would say that this is a reference to jesus and what he does and the bringing of the new covenant to us he's the messenger of the covenant he comes to bring news now there's somebody who comes before him and announces this message so you may be familiar with that. There's also a reference in um, the end of Malachi to Elijah. But just for a second, it's going to be behind me, but I'm also going to read for you something from Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11, this is one of our Gospels. Jesus is speaking. 
And Jesus says this. I'm in the wrong, I was like, this is Mark. I was like, this is not right. Oh, Lord, save me. You have the wrong verse. All right. So we're going to start in verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. This is a guy named John the Baptist who shows up in the Gospels as the one who is preaching about Jesus. He actually baptizes Jesus, and the Spirit comes. And it's a cool little moment there. Father, Son, Spirit are all there. Jesus goes, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? And John's ministry was in the wilderness, it was in the desert land. A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he, this is Jesus speaking. In Jesus' interpretation of Scripture, I'm cool with. When he says it, I'm in. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. He actually changes the me to you, right? He's like making it in reference to himself at that point in time. Verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So if you have read gospel stories before, you realize that before Jesus really shows up, you might have read his birth in Luke chapter 1 and 2, but before his ministry begins, he is announced by somebody named John the Baptist who ends up dying for his faith in Jesus. And when John the Baptist has disciples and people following him, and when Jesus shows up, John's like, hey, that's the one you should all be following. Like, listen to him. Clearly, John the Baptist still had followers, because even as you get into Acts, there are people who were disciples of John the Baptist, I believe in Acts chapter 19. Um, But like, so there's still people who would follow John, but John's like, Jesus is the one you should be listening to. Now, Jesus then quotes Malachi, but makes it about himself. There's no longer like, he's just going to prepare the way. Like, now I'm before you now. I am the one that John was talking about. That's what Jesus is saying. So Jesus' take on Malachi chapter 3 is, right here, I'm the guy, and John was the one announcing me. He says it. So what do we have here? But the Lord, through Malachi, speaking about what is to come. And what is to come is a messenger before the Lord comes and goes to his temple. And Jesus was in the temple courts. Jesus brought the new covenant. And so though it may not have been fulfilled in the way that Malachi's audience was thinking, clearly Jesus is going... Who did you think John was? Just a guy? Wore cool clothes? Not the guy you came out to see. He was the one that prepared the way for me. So there are all kinds of different ways that people will interpret the scriptures. They kind of how do you read the Old Testament into the New Testament? How do the New Testament authors read into the Old Testament? Like, and there's books galore and dissertations galore on this. But this is the thing that I know. When Jesus gives you his take on what's going on in the Bible, you should probably listen. So you just go, okay, good. I dig that. When Jesus makes it clear, I'm in. So this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus' take on Malachi 3 is, the messenger's John, and I'm the one coming. 
here I am. Now, we've talked about prophecy before. Prophecy is kind of a hard thing to, to understand. When is this happening? Because there's still things that are happening in Malachi 3 that you go, huh, like, well, that, that hasn't happened. Maybe it hasn't happened as we thought, or maybe it hasn't been fulfilled in this way, because he talks about all this purification that is going to start going on as God brings his judgment in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5. So in verse 2, so the Lord comes, he has his messenger. We would say that that Lord is Jesus, and the messenger is John the Baptist. But then in verse 2, he's starting to talk about their accusation about his character again. He goes, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand up to it? There's a phrase in the Old Testament called the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is both a big D day and a little D day. They would talk about it as any time God would visit his people in judgment. Right? The day of the Lord. And so when Babylon came and they took the southern kingdom away, that was a day of the Lord. When Jesus comes into the world, right, we experience the day of the Lord. When Jesus returns into this world, there's a new heaven and a new earth, we're, we're getting close to it. There are no more days to be had because he's ending it. So in verse 2, the Lord speaking goes, who can stand on the day of his coming? Who can stand? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire, a fuller's up. He will sit as a refiner in a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, the priestly line, and refine them with gold and silver. They'll bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So you look at 2, 3, 4, and 5, and you go, okay, like, there's a phrase that we use in our theology brains to kind of help us make sense of some of these words. And so we call it already and not yet, or the now and not yet, as in God has started some of these things now, but he has not yet fully done everything. And so what we see is in the coming of Jesus into the world, he has declared, look out. Like, I'm here and believe in me because the clock is ticking and I'm coming back. But we're also in this in-between where you can look at this and go, okay, well, not everybody's purified. And like the sons of Levi aren't offering offerings all the time. Like this is, this is not all happened in the way that maybe, maybe it will happen. Well, we've got to remember that our faith points still to what's coming. Our hope, capital H, hope. We hope in the return of Jesus, the judgment that he brings, but the life that comes with it. So who can stand and endure the day of his judgment? Nobody. The Apostle Paul says it like this. At the day of Christ, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how Paul in the New Testament speaks about when Jesus comes back, no one's silent. No one. So there is this, we look forward to when Jesus comes into this world, and there's this looking past it that is when he comes again. So I've heard, this, uh, heard it illustrated this way, uh, which sometimes helps me, maybe it'll help you, is like they're talking about mountain peaks. And if you look, you know, kind of if you've ever been to some beautiful place that has mountains, this is Texas, so maybe not. But if you're ever in a place that has mountains and you kind of look out and you cannot see... Right? You look at a mountain, and they look like they're right there by each other. 
And then if you change your angle and you're like, wait a second, those things are really far apart. I thought they were right there. And they're not. One time a few years ago, we were in uh, Colorado. And like, well, if you look over there 100 miles, you can see this city. And if you look over there, you can see this city. I'm like, wow, that's kind of crazy. I didn't know. But if I were farther back, I'd be like, those places are like, what, like, like, they're like four minutes apart. But then when your perspective changes and the distance between those two, 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 two events becomes broader, you go, oh, wow. It seems that as we read prophecy, that's some of what's happening. Is it's declaring the coming of this Lord into the world. And there's things that are true and are fulfilled. But then there are still things out there that we long for, that we pray for, that we wait for, and that we look for. So this is what I would say. Anybody who says, I have everything I need in Jesus right now, is not telling themselves the truth. Because Jesus is still working for a day when every right is made wrong. The Holy Spirit is called the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. But the inheritance hasn't happened yet. The deposit guaranteeing it has. And so in our faith in Jesus, there's a moment where we are made alive in him. Because of his coming, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But at his return, there is a moment where we gain everything that is promised. And in this in-between, things have already started, but everything is not yet already fulfilled. So we get to experience, as people who have been sealed with the deposit of the Holy Spirit, we get to experience things like God's faithfulness as we walk with him. And we get to experience how he purifies us and burns out stuff in our hearts and in our minds. We said head, heart, hands last week, that in our lives that do not reflect him. But we're still longing for the day where he returns and he makes right every wrong. And if we lose that part of our faith, we have missed out on some significant fuel for how to live in this world. If the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead and the life that we have in him isn't happening, then every word that I have spoken at an infant's funeral is a lie. Because that's the only thing in those moments that you can hold on to. This isn't all there is. God is doing something. Do not doubt him do not question him that you would think his character is marred, that you can, of course, bring your concerns and worries before him, but with a heart of humility. Lord, help me figure out why this is happening, because I don't understand it, versus how in the world could you? One, keeps him, one perspective keeps him on the throne, and one is us speaking down from our throne. So there's still things God is working out and the New Testament is saturated in future hope because of what Jesus did in the past. It is saturated with it. Future hope because of what Jesus did in the past. 
And in verse 5, we get to hear some of the things, if you can read the kind of the negative image, right? Like, a, like if no one does film anymore, but just pretend you, you know, took your film to the film store and they give you negatives, and that's how they build what they want. You know, this is how your picture looks. This is how the negative of your picture looks. So here he's giving us negatives, and he's like, if you can just process that, and you go, this is what you want me to care about. Because at that day, he's going to draw near for judgment, and he will be a swift witness against sorcerers, those who claim power over uh, this world that they themselves do not have, against adulterers, those who are unfaithful to their marriage vows, against those who swear falsely, who say, I'll do it and then don't, or I won't do it, whatever, like, like those, those who say, oh yeah, this is exactly how it happened, and it didn't happen that way, those who swear falsely, against those who oppress hired workers, against those who oppress widows, against those who oppress the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner who, don't care, who, who care not about the one who has nothing and those who do not fear me. So when God's speaking about his judgment, he's like, here's what I come after. Faithless living that results in a life that is against me and doesn't reflect the things about which I care. So as we look at the reverse image of that, what should God's church care about? Trusting him over anything else, over any other power? Fidelity to our spouse? The staying in our marriage even when it is hard, which is often the saying, I'm here and I'm not leaving, and you're going to have to deal with it. Why? Because it reflects God's covenant-keeping character. Honesty, I was saying this to my cousin the other day, so much of the Christian faith is just doing the things you said you would do. I mean, I, I don't mean that like uh, if you do the things you're supposed to say you do, you're a Christian, but in the sense of like, if you can just say, I'll do it and do it, or I won't do it and don't do it, like, that's a really hard thing to do day in and day out. Jesus and his half-brother say as much. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you say it, let it be true. Why? Because God is a God of truth, and he's a God that's to be known. I won't you know, ask you when the holidays come around how you apply that to certain individuals who come down chimneys, but you just do your, you do your thing. You do you. And then look, against those who oppress a hired worker who'd say, I'll pay you this much and then pay them less. Those who oppress widows, those who have no family and no network of support. Those who oppress fatherless. Those who thrust aside somebody coming through their land looking for a place to stay. Hospitality in the Old Testament was toward the outsider, not toward the insider. If you read about the sojourner, it's like the one who's sojourning, wandering in your midst, be nice to them and give them a place because you know what it's like not to have a home. That's the reasoning God gives. You know what it's like to be in a different land and not have roots. So when you find someone else who's like that, be kind to them. All of these are reflected or reflect God's character, don't they? 
someone who keeps their word, who keeps their covenant, someone who is trusting in him, someone who cares about those who have nothing, no network, no structure, no system, who are interested and deliberate in how they honor, support, and care for those who have nothing. And those who fear him. We say if we understand God, this was last week, it should impact our hearts, it should impact our habits, it should change how we live. Head, hard hands. What he's saying is, for those who don't know me, they don't live like me, they don't look like me. And judgment comes for those. Okay, now, remember the accusation from 217? You're not just because you like evil things. And where are you? You must love evil, where are you? And what does he say? His response is, hey, I'm coming, but when I come, no one stands. No one stands, because no one can do it. So Jesus, coming into this world, when the nation was expecting a sword and a warrior, they get a little confused, don't they? They want a sword and a warrior and somebody who's going to do Malachi 3.5. Take them out, God. They need it. God goes, no, 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 no. You better be careful because you might get taken out. Because you're not concerned about me. You're not interested in me. His accusations from 1-1 till the end of Malachi are like, you've forgotten. You don't care. You don't live. You don't support. You've lost your heart for me. In the book of Revelation, the church of Ephesus. So now we're way in the future. What is the accusation that Jesus gives to the church of Ephesus? You have forsaken your first love. You've forgotten. Three, six, and on begins the next section, but I wanted to grab verse six for us because it, it puts something in our minds that we should always remember. For I, the Lord, do not change. I don't change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Even as he's speaking about this, for those who are the Lord's, they are not consumed. Now, next week in John chapter 1, it's a little preview, right? Jesus, or the, the, the John says about Jesus, but to all who did believe, right? Believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That through faith in Jesus, we become children of God, and thus we, God's children, are not consumed on the day of judgment. There's a gap, even though, like, luckily in Malachi chapter 4, you just go to the next page, and it beautifully says and types that like it said from the very beginning, the New Testament. It hasn't said that from the beginning. So you think, oh, cool, so I just go to Malachi, or maybe you want to pronounce it Malachi just for fun. Um, but you, you just flip a page and you go, oh, cool. So at the end of verse 4, hey, Elijah's coming, 
And the prophecy about John the Baptist, he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. You turn, and you get into Matthew, and you go, oh, this must just like be the next thing. 400 years go by in that page turn from the end of Malachi to Matthew 1. 400 years go by. And during that time, all different kinds of views of God and different versions of Judaism start to show up. That's why when Jesus shows up on the scene, what happens? Right? Like, there's Pharisees and there's Sadducees, and then we don't really read about them here, but like, there's Essenes up there, and they're hanging out in the deserts, like reading scrolls all day. There's Essenes over there. So there's all of these different, like, they're developing out of their faith. Then there's synagogues all over the place. Like, everything is starting to build out. And so the 400-year gap is a pretty significant gap that we may not realize, but what also happens in 400 years? You forget. You forget. And so when John comes on the scene, and people are trying to figure out who he is, they're like, wait a minute. Are you Moses? Right? Like, are, you, are you this guy? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Not are you Moses. Are you the prophet? Because there's this, Moses speaks to this guy who's going to come up and go, there'll be a prophet that comes after me and he's going to say true things. And John's like, nope, 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 nope. So they ask him all these questions because they're trying to figure out. Like they've read it, they know it. It's not like they've just forgotten what it says, but they've forgotten what it means. And so in that 400 year gap, a lot happens. They presents then for us the world that Jesus enters into, that fullness of time. Now for us, how much time has passed since Jesus said, I'll be right back. I mean, the way that the early church lived was, I think he's like, it's gonna, gotta be tomorrow. I mean, he didn't say he'd be gone that long and then the Spirit shows up, right? The Spirit's here, you know, at the day of Pentecost, just a few weeks later. Like, this thing must be happening now. So, what happens in the mind and heart of somebody who walks with Jesus, who after roughly 2,000 years sees injustice, sees pain, sees sorrow, sees evil people get away with really what seem like cool things, right? Like, how did that happen? What happens to our hearts when that much time passes? And we haven't seen God make good on his promises. I know, I know, I know. We're all perfect Christians here, so we're like, oh, no, no, no. We're, we're, nothing happens. We just kind of stay at it day after day. That's not true. <clears throat> what happens is our roots grow deeper and deeper into this world. Even though the world that is coming is where we're supposed to put our hope that's right we're called aliens here but we look around and go it doesn't really feel like there are a lot of aliens i feel like we're just kind of better versions of our neighbors just nicer versions happier versions sometimes smile more maybe we'll have you over for dinner like just different versions of the people who live around us who don't know jesus and they're like oh yeah it's because of jesus over time what happens we forget we forget So, two things, or two things to remember, I guess. Know 
that God is one, faithful, and two, because of that, returning. Know that God is faithful and returning. We have looked at this year so far, from Genesis to Malachi, God's continued faithfulness to unfaithful people. And yet, in our minds and in our hearts, we still often go, yeah, but. Yeah, but. He really isn't that faithful. I mean, that was like, you know, from the start of the nation to where we are now, that was like 1,000, 1,200 years. There wasn't a lot of time. We've already gone more than that. We've almost doubled that. Is God really, is he really faithful? Yes. 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 Is he really returning? Yes. He is really returning. So how then do we know these things? Well, I think our conduct should be different. The way we speak, the way we talk, the way that we believe, that we don't, our attitude towards God is not hostile. It's not embittered. That we would turn to him. That when we read the phrase, I don't change, so you're not consumed, and through faith in Jesus, we are a child of God, we don't go, well, maybe. Because when you realize that you are, by God's grace and because of the work of Jesus, you are covered over for the punishment that you deserve. That should revolutionize every breath you take because every breath you take as someone who is alive to God is a grace for him and it is for him going, I'm not done. I'm not done. And then hope. Hope in his return. We lose hope so often. We were driving to uh, Louisiana Friday. Driving to Louisiana to pick up the kids and came back yesterday. And we got in a little late because we stopped, Courtney and I stopped for dinner, which is what we do when the kids aren't around. So we stopped for dinner, so we probably get to uh, Mimi and Pop's house, you know, 10, 10.30, I don't recall. It's just sometime late. Kids are lying down, but they're not awake, or they're, they're not asleep. And one of my boys was like, I was waiting for you. Uh, I was going to wait outside, but it was kind of hot. And you were taking a long time. And I said, yeah. Yeah. Now, it would have probably been pretty cute if, you know, he sat out on the patio for two hours waiting for Dad to get home. But I would also be like, why in the world are you sitting outside? It's hot. And we took a long time. So it probably wouldn't have been that cute. But so often with the Lord, we're like, I don't know. I mean, I waited for like, 20 minutes? I really thought you'd answer that prayer. You didn't answer it. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. Don't live and root yourself in this world because it disappoints. What is to come is so much better. But after 2,000 years, you can forget. After 2,000 seconds, you can forget. So pray by His Spirit, which knows what to pray even when we don't. That we would root ourselves 
in the promises that God is coming, that he is just, that his character does not need to be questioned because he is always faithful to do the things he said he would do. So I want to pray that over us, for me and for you now as we finish. Heavenly Father, we cannot ever live the life that Jesus lived for us. We cannot do the things that your scriptures command of us because our hearts wander, our minds forget, we lose focus, but we know because of the work of Jesus and through faith in him we can be alive. Lord, might our hearts be rooted in the life that is to come, in the promises that you give, in the truth that Jesus is not done and that he is returning. I pray, God, in whatever way we might forget or offer the wrong kinds of sacrifices or lose heart, God, that you might rip those out of us graciously but firmly so that our hope and our anchor is only in the person, work, and return of our Lord Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.